This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Mark Hyman. Mark is a four-time New York Times bestselling author and currently medical editor at the Huffington Post and on the medical advisory board at the Dr. Oz Show. He combines the best of conventional and alternative medicine with the blend of science, integrity, intuition, and compassion. He has written the best-selling books, The Ultra Mind Solution, The Ultra Simple Diet, and Ultra Metabolism. With Sounds True, Mark has created the audio program Ultra Calm, a six-step plan to reduce stress and eliminate anxiety, along with a self-guided learning course called The Detox Box, a safe, medically informed detoxification program to boost your health and immune system. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mark and I spoke about the basics of detoxification when it comes to feeling healthy and alive. We also talked about the importance of making healthy choices and creating our home and workplace as a quote-unquote safe zone. We talked about why so many people are currently discovering that they're allergic to gluten and dairy, and how the changes that we need to make in our lives are not just personal, but also require collective solutions and social support. Here's my conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman. Well, Mark, I have to be honest, I'm a little nervous about talking to you about the topic of detoxifying, because often when I have in-depth conversations with people, I end up being very influenced by their ideas. And I'm quite nervous that this conversation is going to inspire might not be the right word, but require me to do some kind of detoxification. And I, um, I, I don't really want to do that, but let's have the conversation anyway. I'm sure you well, deal a lot with people in this kind of situation. So what do you say at the beginning to help the nervous person even open up to the idea of detoxifying? Well, I say, I, say, I say to you, Tammy, every day you're detoxifying, whether you know it or not, your body is in a constant process of doing that. You're you're breathing and excreting carbon dioxide, you're, you're drinking in fluids and you're urinating them out, you're taking in food and you're excreting them, you're sweating through your skin, so you're, you're always detoxifying. You just don't think about it, but it's one of the most important things your body does to keep you healthy. It, sometimes it just needs a little nudge. That's all we're really talking about, nudging your body's own vital processes and trying to find the things that really don't work for you and letting go of some of those. Okay, nudging seems okay. I think my concern when I hear a word like detoxifying 
is that I'm not going to be able to have alcohol, caffeine, sugar, a lot of the other things that are part of my diet right now. That doesn't sound like a nudge. <laughs> it does, it does it. But I, the way I encourage people to think about it is, you know, you spend your whole life just living your life, moving along, going through the things that you do without much thought about how you might feel if you change things for a little bit, even for a few days or a week, and what you might feel like if you just took away the things that may be impairing your health and put in things that help you thrive and see what happens. Uh, most of my patients will say, Dr. Hyman, I didn't know I was feeling so bad until I started feeling so good. And I, I really want people to understand how close they are to feeling well. Most people don't connect their behavior, what they eat, what they drink, what they do with their bodies or not, um, how much they sleep, how they deal with stress. They don't connect that with actually how they're feeling or any conditions or diseases or symptoms they might have. So there's a big disconnect, even in very well-educated, intelligent people. And so all I, all I invite people to do is to do an experiment, to see what it feels like to change things for a little bit. I'm not talking about stopping everything for your whole life or you know, going into a monastery and renouncing all your earthly belongings and eating rice for the rest of your life. I'm just talking about a little holiday from your normal routine and a retreat. And it's, you know, it's something that's been embedded in almost every culture throughout the eons. Every culture has a time of retreat, of renewal, of repair, of, of pausing, whether it's Yom Kippur or Passover in Jewish tradition or whether it's, it's uh, Lent or whether it's Ramadan. There's always some thing that is embedded in our, in our traditions that allows us to stop and pause, think, reflect, renew. Uh, and, and that's something that we've lost in our culture. And, and we just go at 100 miles an hour, and many of us bear the insults of that pretty heavily in fatigue and chronic disease and sluggishness and brain fog and everything from acne to constipation. <laughs> so, uh, these are all things that don't have to be part of the normal human condition. And you don't know better unless you try to stop and see what happens. Okay, well, lay out for me the detoxification basics. This is what you need to know. Well, I think, you know, it's quite simple, really. It's just taking out the bad stuff and putting in the good stuff and letting your body do the rest. So it can be done in any variety of ways, but I try to make it as least painful as possible. And most people freak out and think they're going to go through a horrible series of symptoms or detoxify or have uh, what they call a healing crisis, but I don't, <laughs> I don't really believe in that. I think you can do it in a way that's remarkably powerful. For example, I'm taking a group to uh, Caribbean Island this week, and we're going to do a uh, healing week, and it, it's designed to restore and renew the body. So we, we, we include a lot of things. So it's about not only what we exclude, but it's more about what we include. People think about detox as what you exclude. I don't think about it that way. I think about what can we include. So in the morning, we include a beautiful walk in the morning on the beach. Now, you can't always do that on the beach, but in the morning, morning light has a, a powerful restorative effect on your pineal gland, which resets your autonomic nervous system, resets the stress response, helps your sleep rhythms. It's great for your adrenals. Then, And then we we have a little bit of a shake. So we have a uh, a, a juice, like a, a little bit of a, a vegetable juice shake in the morning that gets us going. And then we do a yoga class. And um, then we'll have a little session where we just have a conversation about healing and life and whatever I feel like talking about that day. And then we um, 
have lunch, and uh, lunch is usually fresh vegetables, salads, uh, all combinations of delicious food. And then we, um, we again, take some pause in the afternoon to rest. Maybe people take a nap, just restore themselves a little bit, read, reflect. Uh, there's some energy healer I have brought with me to do some energy healing. And then we, then we do a restorative yoga class. So it's not a vigorous yoga class like we had in the morning. It's more of a, a meditation and relaxation and it's very passive. And then we do a sauna and, or steam or jacuzzi and, and sweat, and we do some electrolyte, uh, which is basically different kinds of uh, nut milks and things that are, are really delicious uh, electrolyte. We get a great chef to come with us. Now, of course, not everybody can do this like I'm, I'm explaining it, but these are the kinds of things we include. And then we, um, we have a very simple dinner, you know, so maybe some lean protein, vegetable protein or animal protein, a little bit of brown rice, vegetables, and uh, and then we have a quiet evening, maybe do something fun together. And we did a fire ceremony, and that was it. The things that are, are left aside are uh, often our, our daily habits of addiction to media, addiction to our Blackberries and our iPhones, computers and emails, our addiction to entertainment. You know, Americans are the most entertained, least informed people on the planet. And I think, <laughs> you know, we, we sometimes just need to stop all that for a little bit to rest our nervous system. Uh, we leave aside the stimulants and the sedatives, so caffeine and nicotine and, and sugar and alcohol. And and uh, the other thing that I often do is, is um, have people let go of the things that are really inflammatory foods, so gluten and dairy and a few other allergens that can be often a problem, and people have no idea because they're eating them all the time. So there's a baseline level of feeling unwell so we pause and let the body see what happens when you remove those those things. And and that's pretty much it. It's it's not too complicated. It's just eating some real food, it's eating more fresh food, it's getting rid of sedatives and stimulants, it's getting enough rest, it's it's just restoring your system. It's like a recharge. When I hear you describe it and I imagine being in the Caribbean and having this great cook and not having my technology devices with me. I feel very happy, and it all, it all seems like it's going <laughs> to roll fabulously. But what do you suggest for the person who has an inkling that they need to go through some kind of detox, but they're right in the middle of their life? They don't have that kind yeah. of luxury. I actually do it pretty regularly myself. I, I call it having my spa day. So I basically will, will still do my work, but you know, I I just structure my life in those days so that I can do things that are more restorative than depleting. So I'll make sure I get enough sleep. I'll make sure that I'll do a yoga class, for example. I'll I'll eat really clean food, and I'll you know try to just take care of myself within the scope of what I can do. And it becomes more of a sort of a habit. I actually, it's sort of how I live most of the time now. I think I probably work too much, but other than that, you know, I, I just don't find myself gravitating towards sweets and sugar and alcohol, caffeine, I like green tea, and I don't find myself, um, you know, looking at at, um, at a lot of these things that, that I, I think I used to use to help me manage my energy, because if I if I use external props to manage my energy, then then it's something that will, will sort of ultimately catch up with me, and I'll have to pay for it, I'll have to pay back that energy with usually a illness or um, a collapse of exhaustion. So I, I, I think uh, I, I think it's not that hard to do in your daily life. People do it. It takes a little bit of planning, a little bit of forethought, a little bit of sort of structure. And I think um, I, I'm really a big fan of, of planning. And, you know, 
in terms of thinking about how you're going to create your week and create your day and, and never be in a food emergency and how to stock your pantry and how to stock your fridge and what to shop for and how to have emergency food packed with you. So you're never really stuck in a place where you're going to be making the wrong choices. And and if you set the system up in advance, it's not that hard for a week to do it or even for a longer period. Okay. Now, you talked about a couple of categories, the stimulants and the sedatives. What do you think is a healthy relationship to those two categories? Depends on the person. You know, some people have one cup of coffee and they're bouncing off the wall for three days. Other people can have a triple espresso and go right to bed. And that, that has to do with their capacity for detox. And that's that's not just a metaphorical capacity. It's actually based on your genetics and your enzymes and how fast or slow they are in get, getting rid of these compounds. So um, same thing with alcohol. Some people can tolerate it. Some people can't. Uh, you know, and I think everybody's individual. For me, you know, I would probably say... Um, I, I like to have, uh, you know, coffee as a drug once in a while. And if I'm, you know, um, just feeling like I, I want to really focus or working on writing an article and I just want that extra little buzz, I'll use it. Um, it alcohol, I would say I, I don't really drink on a regular basis, but occasionally I'll go out and have some tequila with some friends or sake if I go out to a Japanese restaurant, and I really enjoy that. So I, I think... Uh, uh, I don't do it on a regular basis, but probably two or three times a month. And everybody is different. Uh, it really depends on the, the overall balance of your life. I'm liking these recommendations much more than I had anticipated. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit because you said, you know, it's different for different people, how their body naturally flushes out different substances. So can you explain that, how that works? Yeah, well, um, you know, everybody genetically is, is unique and with the genomic revolution, we're understanding that our biochemistry is all different, that our genetics are different, uh, and that the variations in our genes determine our health. And uh, some people are fabulous detoxifiers, and others are horrible detoxifiers. For example, for, my, for myself, I know that, that um, I, I had mercury poisoning and was very sick. I lived in China and, and accumulated a lot of mercury for, for various sources. And when I did my own genetic testing, I found that I really was a really crummy detoxifier, that there are certain genes that have to do with glutathione. This is a master detoxifying molecule in your body that I just can't do it as well as most people. And so if I'm exposed to a given amount of toxin, I'll feel it, I'll accumulate it, and I'll not be able to excrete it. So I'm very careful about taking in you know, extraneous toxins. I don't eat swordfish. I don't eat tuna. I make sure I use everyday foods that upregulate those enzymes, like the broccoli family of vegetables. I use arugula as a salad because it has that property. Watercress. I'm always looking to find where I can get my medicine from my food, and and so I'm I'm able to understand how to regulate that. And I think different people have to tune into what's going on with their body. And I I think this you know this is pretty unique. But uh, if if you tune in and you listen, and that's why I love the idea of a week long renewal and reboot. If you do that, you will know at the end um, what your sort of new baseline is. And what happens there is you find a sense of possibility. What is it like to feel good? And then you can make a choice. If I add this or that back, how do I feel? And you begin to notice and, and observe and listen to your body. Because it's the best barometer of what's going on with you. It's the best barometer of how to actually function in a way that drives um, choices that you're in control of instead of being a victim of 
your feelings or victim of your bodily sensations or experiences, you can actually make a choice. And I don't think most people have that awareness that they have that choice. And that's really why I'm a big fan of of, of detoxification and of, of sort of this renewal and reboot experience because, you know, it gives people a taste of, oh, my God, I can feel like that. I can, my joint pain can go away. My migraines can go away. My irritable bowel can go away. I'm not stuffy and runny uh, every day in my nose. I, I My skin's clearing up. I'm, I have more energy. I'm sleeping better. I mean, I've lost weight. I, I just All these things change very quickly. It doesn't take months or years. It's literally days or weeks. Well, now this idea of having a choice, I think a lot of people don't have the experience. For example, when you wake up in the morning and there's this sense of, I need caffeine, it doesn't feel very choice-filled, let alone people who love sugar or all kinds of things. So help me get to the place where I'm actually making choices all day long. Well, if you're a heroin addict or, or you're addicted to cigarettes, it isn't a choice because it's an addiction. And, and many of us are addicted to substances that are legal, <laughs> like caffeine uh, and, or alcohol or um, sugar, and, which is one of the biggest addicted addictions in America. Um, and, and people don't think of it that way, but when we look at the biology of sugar, it actually is the same as the biology of morphine or heroin or cocaine. It, it binds to the same receptors in your brain as cocaine and, and stimulates that reward experience and it's short-lived and then you need it again and you need it again and you need more and you need more and you develop a tolerance in fact over time people who, who are obese and have become sugar addicts have less pleasure from the food and just need it to just stay normal like at the end you know someone who's a heroin addict isn't getting high anymore they're just not feeling bad and i think that's uh that's something that most people aren't aware of and and it is possible to shift that, and I've, I've written a lot about this and talk a lot about it. I think there's a way to to reset your metabolism very quickly. I, had, I did a workshop once, and there was a woman. She said, look, I'm a sugar addict. There's no way I can ever stop. I, I've tried. I, I go crazy. I I don't know what to do. I, I'm really scared about being here. You know, you got to help me. <laughs> she was kind of freaking out. So I um, I said, look, just, just do what I suggest, which is to you know, eat in a certain way that, that balances your blood sugar, to, balances your biochemistry and and two days in the workshop she was like oh my god i can't believe it i i don't have any cravings i feel fine i'm not always looking for it i'm not in that place of being imprisoned by my my cravings and that's a powerful insight for people and it doesn't take a long time you know two or three days at the most and and sometimes you know you can mitigate that and i do talk and write a lot about how to reduce those symptoms of, of uh, withdrawal. But it's, it's, it's real. And if, if you say to yourself, you know, if I'm so dependent on this compound to just feel good, is that something I want to choose? And, and uh, it might take a little work, but <laughs> it's possible to overcome that. So can you give me the basics, Mark, on how I start to shift if I'm addicted to sugar? Yeah, so I, I've written about this in my latest book called The Blood Sugar Solution. And essentially, you know, I have 10 tips for cutting cravings and stopping food addiction. And the first one is to eat in a way that balances your blood sugar. So that's having protein in the morning, particularly. Uh, and it could be any vegetable or animal protein. It can be um, a protein shake. It can be eggs. It can be tofu, whatever. It, nuts, nut butters. Uh, having protein is very key in the morning because that resets your brain chemistry. Having uh, protein with every meal also is important. And having good quality fats 
So I always say you combine to create the perfect plate, and that will balance your blood sugar. So 50% should be, other than breakfast, should be non-starchy vegetables, asparagus, you know, broccoli, green beans, etc., or any greens. One quarter should be lean animal protein or vegetable protein, a little chicken or fish or um, beans or tofu, and one quarter could be like a starchy vegetable like a winter squash or like black rice or brown rice. And if you eat that way and you do it consistently and then you have a little snack mid-morning, mid-afternoon, maybe a handful of nuts, that'll just keep your blood sugar and insulin even and prevent these spikes. There's also some other tricks um, using fiber beforehand. I use a special seaweed and um, cognac root. It's a Japanese root. It's very viscous in it. You can, it kind of absorbs a lot of water. So if you take that before a meal, like 15 minutes with a glass of water, it'll help mitigate your appetite and reduce spikes in sugar and insulin. Um, you know, eating eating early and eating often, as I said, is, is important, those smaller frequent meals. Also, I use mineral broths that can be very helpful in alkalinizing to help um, reduce those cravings. Uh, and and other, a few other suggestions that I have. But those are those are the basic ideas, and it's, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. <laughs> you have to go cold turkey, though. You can't just have a little bit, and you can't have artificial sweeteners because that triggers the same taste in the brain as, as sugar, and it, it sets up a neurochemical reaction that drives insulin production, fat storage, cravings, screws up your metabolism. So, um, you know, dealing with stress is important. Getting enough sleep is important. Uh, all those things are key. People, I mean, people who don't sleep enough crave more sugar. Um, I knew that was true when I worked in the ER. If I was, was up all night, I'd just be looking for the cinnamon buns in the morning. <laughs> and why is that? Uh, it's because when you when you uh, don't sleep enough, the ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, increases, and the PYY, which is the break on your appetite from your stomach, that's another hormone, it, it, it actually reduces. So you have a, too much of the hunger hormone and not enough of the appetite-suppressing hormones that get produced in the body as a result of sleep deprivation, even in healthy people. Now, you said something that I'd never heard before, that the sugar as a substance works in the body in terms of how it binds to receptors in a similar way to heroin. Did I hear you correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's quite astounding when you look at the research. I, you know, Kelly Brownell's a friend and colleague of mine. He's at Yale Center for Food Policy and Obesity Research. He's done a lot of work on the food addiction. And, you know, actually, uh, he has a whole food addiction quiz, which you can identify the, the fact of whether or not you are one of those people who does have a food addiction, but he also talks about some of the biology of it and the research. And when they look at brain imaging, they found that you know uh, people who are overweight and obese and sugar addicts have lower dopamine receptors, and they make them more likely to crave things that boost dopamine. Um, that that they stimulate these uh, these receptors in the brain that that are are triggering binging. That uh, it, you know they develop tolerance to it, and and actually they. Um, they would experience real withdrawal like an addict. Um, and there's also some fascinating studies where they've used drugs that block opioid addiction. Uh, so if you go, for example, when I worked in the emergency room, patients would come in with a heroin overdose, we'd give them a drug called Narcan, which blocks the opiate receptors so that the heroin can't do its job of making you, you know, sedated or whatever it does and, because it causes respiratory depression so it saves somebody's life. Well, if you give that to, to a sugar addict, their cravings will stop and they'll lose weight because they're not going to receive any pleasure from the sugar anymore because it blocks that effect. So it's very interesting to see that. And looking at 
brain imaging studies, we see all these patterns are the same. So if I was trying to break a heroin addiction, I mean, God forbid, I wouldn't try to do it on my own using a book. I'd need, I'd need quite a lot of help, but yet I can break a sugar addiction on my own? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, um, you, you're not going to go into, you know, serious uh, death throes of <laughs> when, you, when you cut out sugar, but you might feel poorly for a day or so. And, uh, and by, by doing the things that I just said and by, by giving yourself that time, you can get off it and, it and very quickly. And if you start the first day going cold turkey and you start your day with the right food and you eat frequently enough and you have the right foods throughout the day and you cut out sort of all sugars and grains, you'll see very quickly your body will reset. It, it, the hormones and the genes that get turned on and the neurochemistry is very quick to reset. I mean, basically the food industry has hijacked our brain chemistry, it's hijacked our taste buds, and it's hijacked our kitchens, and we need to take them back. Now, in your own experience or with people that you've worked with, whether they've given up sugar or done a detoxification program where they've let go of caffeine for a period of time, what have you noticed in terms of the emotions that come up for people in the process? And how do you understand those emotions being released when a substance is no longer engaged in? Well, I think that's a very important point, Tammy. I think you know the reason that people get into behaviors that are addictive, like sugar or alcohol, is because they're often triggered into that by some emotional experience, stress or trauma or pain, and and it makes you feel better temporarily. So you go back after it over and over again, but eventually it doesn't work anymore. And so part of the process is, and I talk a lot about this, is is a self-exploration and asking yourself questions about what's really going on for you. For example, when you're about to eat something, you should say, well, what am I feeling right now? What am I, what am I feeling? And, 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 um, you know, and, and what do I need? You know, like, am I feeling, you know, tired? Do I need a nap? Am I angry? Do I need to deal with that? Am I, am I lonely? Do I need a hug? I mean, am I hungry? Do I need something to eat? Most of the responses we have to our feelings in this culture are to go to the fridge or to go to the fast food place or to eat something instead of just taking a moment to say, you know, what am I feeling and what do I need and identifying that in a, in a really just very conscious way. Um, and and there's some wonderful, wonderful um, books. Uh, Julia Cameron's written a book called The Writing Diet, talking about how you can use words to to help you process and metabolize your feelings that often are around your life and food and things that don't work for you. So uh, we often use food to stuff our feelings, but we can use words to heal our feelings. And I think people uh, often find journaling very, very helpful. Now, I'm imagining that many of our listeners probably know a great deal, at least, about some of the basics of what proper nutrition might be. Like they probably get it that the kinds of foods you're recommending and they may have even heard, you know, having protein in the morning and certainly that they should eat more broccoli and kale, etc. that this information they get it. But yet they're not making these changes. You know, month after month after month, they're still not making the shift or if they do, it's for a very brief period of time and then they just go back to their previous patterns of eating. So what do you think is actually at the bottom mark of people having the information but not making the changes? 
Well, I think our, our culture doesn't support it. I mean, uh, we're constantly pushed and pulled in the direction of not taking care of ourselves, of becoming numb, of of being um, influenced by the defaults in our environment. And you know, one of the things I've been very focused on the last year is how do we change our community? How do we change the support in the in the world that we live in to, to foster the things that we know support health and create create a life that's abundant and rich? And I did an experiment, sort of a social experiment, with a large church in Southern California where we where we invited them to do a healthy living program together in the community. And they had, you know, it was a 30,000-member church, but they had 5,000 small groups. So it wasn't really a mega church; It was thousands of mini-churches. And in, the, in that um, experience of working together, of supporting each other, of helping each other, they were able to really transform and and, and instead of having donuts and ribs for breakfast, they had really good food. Instead of, of not, um, you know, engaging activities that were healthy, they learned how to shop together and cook together and support each other and had dinners where they invite each other over. And it became part of the culture of what they did. And, and many of us don't have that support. And, and I think it's possible to create that and build that in your community with friends or colleagues, even at work, you know. I think at work, you know, you, you go into work and it's often, a, it's not a safe zone. There's often cookies and candy and sodas everywhere. And, you know, I know I met someone the other day who said they they created a potluck club for lunch. So they, they got a bunch of people together and they'd all make healthy meals. And they had 14 people. So like every, or 15 people, every every three weeks they had to make a lunch for 15 people. And, and it was great. And they got basically a free lunch once. <laughs> uh, and only had to cook once every three weeks. And it was a communal thing, and they shared it together. And, you know, those are the kinds of changes that we can build into our life that can, can really transform our, our experience so that, that our life is constructed in a way that supports health rather than, than, than sabotages it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a strong statement, I think, that it might leave people questioning, well, what's the next step? I mean, you mentioned the idea of bonding with other people in the workplace. That's good. What else would I do? What are my next steps to make this a community affair? Well, you know, I think that that each of us has to find our own community, but it, it, it's something that we're naturally drawn to. You know, E.O. Wilson in this new book, The Social Conquest of the Earth, has talked about how it's in our very nature to to want to join a group, to be part of a tribe, and to to work together toward common ends. And whether it's fighting other tribes or whether it's surviving, it's sort of an evolutionary adaptation. It's, it's sort of group selection, he calls it. And it's, it's really a, a sort of a quantum jump in our thinking from, you know, the, the, the uh, sort of survival of the fittest as an individual struggle to the survival of the fittest as a group endeavor. And uh, I think... I encourage people to find out what their group is. Is it their church? Is it their synagogue? Is it their yoga group? Is it their um, work colleagues? Is there some way for them to collectively come together? Whether Maybe it's just one friend. Maybe it's just a couple of people. Maybe it's just people in your family who are engaged with you and trying to create a different way of supporting each other. Those are the things that I, I think um, stand out to me. And I, I think... Um, you know, I'm, I'm was on the phone this morning with a conference call for the Veterans Administration in New Orleans, where the entire healthcare system has been demolished. There's no hospital, uh, the clinics have been destroyed, and so they're having to decentralize healthcare and to create community-based models where people support each other to to get healthy. And, and actually, that um, 
it's something that I, I think people should think about even engaging in directly. And, and, um, and I, I write a lot about that in my books, about how do we begin to start create community? What are ways you can do it online or in person and, and uh, start to, to change our culture, to, to, to sort of stand up and say, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> I'm going I'm to create a, a very local, a very immediate, a very real, a very connected life that allows me to to really support being fully alive and 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 taking care of myself in ways that that um, our culture really doesn't support. Okay, I'm going to ask a question. A group of people come together. It's in a business for a birthday party, and we're not going to serve cake or cookies. What are we going to serve? <laughs> you can serve cake or cookies. I mean, I think it's really about what what uh, what you do the rest of the time. It's not the the five or ten percent of the time things you do, it's the ninety percent of the time things you do, and and I think uh, there always is time in life for celebration, for feasting, for indulgence, for oh, for the spectrum of, of life experience that we have as humans. But I think um, we have to we have to you know not have a birthday party every single day, <laughs> basically. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, now there are two other substances that you mentioned earlier in our conversation that I want to track back to that you often leave out when you're helping people go through a detoxification program so that they can get in touch with this more alive sense of being. You mentioned gluten and dairy. And let's go into each of those. These are two substances that there's a lot, it seems now, questioning about. Am I allergic to gluten? Am I allergic to dairy? How would people know, first of all? Do they have to be tested, or would I just know because I was observing myself? Well, your body is the best barometer of what's good for you or not good for you. And if you listen to your body, even if you don't like what it's saying, it will usually tell you what you need to know. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, unfortunately, our food production system has produced our staples in a way that, that are quite different than we we had even 100 years ago or 50 years ago. So, for example, the wheat we're eating is not the wheat your great-grandmother made bread with. It's wheat that's been hybrid. Even your grandmother, you know, the wheat's been hybridized, and the person who did that actually won the Nobel Prize as part of the Green Revolution for feeding a hungry planet, which is a good thing. But the dwarf wheat is much more hardy. It's it's pesticide and drought resistant, but the starch molecules are very, very starchy. So you've got a large starch molecule. We also have different gluten proteins because it's a different genetic plant than traditional wheat. So you've got 
foreign proteins that are much more likely to cause inflammation. Same thing with cows, casein molecules. The structure of the casein molecule in the dairy is different than it was in heirloom cows or 100 years ago. So these have created a, a lot of inflammatory responses in people. Uh, and combining that with our high-sugar, low-fiber diet with drugs that, that damage the intestines like acid-blocking drugs and and anti-inflammatory drugs and our overuse of antibiotics, all of a sudden we have a perfect storm for this explosion of food sensitivities and allergies, particularly gluten and dairy. So I always encourage people to give those a break for a week or two and see what happens. Do you feel better? Do you have more energy? Does your stomach feel better? Do you get rid of reflux or normal bowel or migraines or asthma? Does your eczema go away? Does your sinuses clear up? You know, all these things can get better. Does your joint pain go away? And does your depression lift? Can you sleep better? I mean, these are the things that happen. I, I do workshops with like five-day detoxes with people, acropolis sometimes, and, and people are amazed at the end of five days how dramatic the change is in their body by just taking a pause and putting in things that are are going to create healing and support detoxification and reduce inflammation in the body and getting rid of those things that are burdening the system and, and creating potential inflammation like gluten and dairy. So, again, it's one of those things, you don't know the horse is standing on your foot until it gets off. So I'm just going to people like, see what it's like. Try it. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. If it changes your life and you, you get rid of symptoms you've had for a decade, then you have a choice. You want to feel crummy or you want to feel good. It's up to you. I don't have any judgment about it. But you should at least know you have a possibility of feeling good. Do you also recommend that people are tested for food allergies? Well, there's a lot of different kinds of testing. A lot of it's problematic. I think gluten testing, you know, is probably important for people who have conditions that are, are bothering them. I think the average person, you know, may, you may not find everything, anything with them, but if they're not feeling well, uh, and I have a population that comes to see me doesn't feel well, Many, many of them, probably up to 30% of them, have some type of gluten sensitivity or inflammation related to that. So I do, I do test for celiac if anybody is prob- problematic in their health, and if anybody um, is at risk based on you know my evaluation, I, I'll test. I have a very low threshold for checking, but I'm not just looking for celiac. I'm looking for the spectrum of reactions to gluten. And there's some more sophisticated testing coming out that I've been using, but it's not something that would be really useful or available to everybody at this point. It's really more for, for really solving tough clinical cases. I think, you know, just trying, trying to get off it for a while and see what happens and then trying it again and seeing what happens is a really great test because, you know, I had a patient, she was off gluten, she felt great, all of her stomach pains got better, her bowel and her energy and her allergies and everything. So I feel good. I'm going to you know, I'm going I'm to try it again. She had it and she ended up in the emergency room with such severe pain because when you stop it and you feel better and then you start it again, your actually reaction will be worse. So your body will, will have a pretty good um, response to something that's, that's it's not agreeing with it, and you can use that as a barometer for what to do. Okay, I want to go back, Mark, to what I think is really, in some ways, the sort of emotional crux of our conversation, because we talked about the power of social support and the cultural context in which we live and how, for many people, they won't have that support built in to their life, but they can begin to create it. Okay. But still, most of us find ourselves on our own, knowing we need to make certain changes, 
I mean, as I'm listening to you, I know the experience I'm having and I'm imagining the experience that listeners may be having. I know there are certain things that I consume that I'd be better off. I'd feel more alive, more heart-based, more open if I did not eat things. And there are other things I need to eat. Like what? Okay, okay. (laughs) And there are other things I need to eat more of. Like, I know this. And yet, making these changes, part of the reason it's hard is because there's emotional material I'll need to work with in my life in order to do this. Mm -hmm. I'll have to change a lot of things in my life, actually, to do this. And I'll have to face a lot of things. And you mentioned, you know, you can write things down, why I'm craving this or why I don't want to eat this. But, you know, this is hard. It's really hard work. And I know you've worked with lots of people. And so I want to hear more about what you find works to help people really face the emotional aspect of changing their diet. Well, you know, I... I, um I really work with people a lot around this because it is, it is, you can't, you know, change the levers on biology unless you can change the levers on behavior. And I know how to tune somebody up from a biological point of view, but it's useless if they're not going to do it. So it's a big part of our practice. And, and um, I have people in my practice who are coaches. I have nurses who work with them as coaches, nutrition coaches. And... And I act in that way with my patients and really try to find out what is it that's, that's meaningful to them, what is in their way, what are their obstacles, what, what are the things that, in, that are embedded in the structure of their lives that make it difficult to do the things that are, are good for them. And, I, and we explore all these things, and it's different for everybody, so it's very personalized. And then for some people, they really have very deep embedded emotional patterns that are very hard to undo. And so I really encourage them to work with somebody, and we have a... Uh, you know, for example, I, I created an online course which is launching in the fall, which is basically providing life coaching as part of the healing process. So it helps you work through the biological transformation because at the same time you're working through the emotional blockages and the emotional toxins that are in your way. And I, I completely agree with you. It's it's part and parcel of, of the process. Um, but often, you know, I always say it's very hard to wake up, it's very hard to get connected to your feelings if you're constantly disconnected from them because you feel lousy or because your body's inflamed or because you're toxic or because you have nutritional deficiencies. You know, it's like it's much easier to be uh, meditating and enlightened and aware and awake if you aren't mercury poisoned or your B12 levels are okay or if you have enough vitamin D in your system or you're not eating something that's causing your brain to be inflamed like gluten. Mm-hmm. Now, you see all kinds of people in your practice, and I'm curious what the most common issues are that you discover that people are facing that they're surprised by. Like, really? I had no idea. That's really the source of my problem. Well, you know, I do think that people don't connect food with their health in a real way. They go, oh, I know if I eat a cheeseburger and fries and a soda, it's probably not good for me. But they don't really connect the the fact that they might have disease or symptoms that are connected to things they're eating. And and it's it's sort of striking to me to see that. And I not that nothing is, is better in my life than to actually get people to eat real food for a week or two, get off of the major allergens for a week or two, and see the transformation that happens quickly. So when I can do that for people, I feel it's a real 
it's a real service to be able to actually guide them into an experience of wellness that isn't that far off, and it's simply through changing what they eat. So food first always is the biggest thing, and uh, sometimes it's other things, though. I mean, often gluten is a big factor they're not aware of. Sometimes people have heavy metal toxicity they're not aware of. A lot of times people are nutritionally deficient. They're not aware of that. Um, you know, many people have prediabetes and diabetes, and they're completely unaware completely unaware of that and the 90% of people who have this are not even diagnosed uh, and they're, they're, they're just coming in um, you know blind and I, I think that's that's a you know, big part of I think what's driving a lot of the disease in our culture is this this phenomenon of prediabetes and, and I've uh, never heard of that before can you explain what that is to me pre, pre, pre-diabetes yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's essentially a problem that affects one out of every two Americans 90% are not diagnosed and it's the continuum from a little bit of belly fat to imbalances in your blood sugar, to to prediabetes, all the way to full-blown type 2 diabetes. And essentially what happens is that when you eat sugar or processed food, uh, you drive up your insulin levels. And insulin is a fat storage hormone. Then you become resistant to the effects of insulin, and you pump out more and more insulin, and your body becomes numb to it, and you need more and more, and you just produce more belly fat, and it's a vicious cycle. So it's a condition that's it's driving most of the healthcare costs and most of the disease in our society. And I think it's a shame because it's mostly a lifestyle-driven disease and conventional practitioners don't know much about it and don't diagnose it and don't know how to treat it because we're trained more about how to fix malaria than how to treat obesity-related illnesses when we graduate medical school. It's pretty much a shame. How do you diagnose prediabetes when people come and see you? Well, I have a really simple quiz that in a questionnaire, I ask a set of questions. Uh, do you have belly fat? Do you have a family history of diabetes or obesity or early heart disease? Are you of non-white ancestry, African-American, Latin American, Asian, um, Indian, Native, Native American, or, or, or East Indian? All these have much higher risks. Uh, do you have a little high blood pressure? Has your doctor told you your sugar's a little high? Do you have high triglycerides, low HDL? Do you have other problems like infertility? I, uh, have you had heart disease yourself? These are all questions I'll ask people as a survey, and then I'll do some testing, and I'll just measure some very simple blood tests. It's a sugar drink, so I give people a sugar drink and then measure their blood and check their insulin and their blood sugar an hour and two hours later. Now, most doctors just check blood sugar, which is very late to go up in the game. You first want to check insulin early on, and that will give you a clue as to what's really going on. So that's the way I'll diagnose it. It's it's pretty easy to diagnose mm-hmm. if you know what you're looking for. And when you said that it's endemic in our society today, what kinds of statistics do you have for that? Oh, gosh, Timmy, it's horrible. Um, you know, one out of two Americans that has prediabetes or diabetes, um, it uh, affects one in, one in di- type 2 diabetes affects one in 10 Americans and one in five African Americans one in four Medicare patients will affect one in three children born today. One in three children born today will have type 2 diabetes in their lifetime if we continue at current trends. Um, one in three Medicare dollars is spent on type 2 diabetes. I just talked to the VA. They have six million veterans they take care of. Two million, one-third, a full one-third. One in three are diabetic. So th- this, is a, this is a huge problem, and uh, it's costing us $3.5 trillion over the next 10 years to take care of this globally. It's spreading around the world. 80% of the world's diabetics, type 2 diabetics, are in 
developing countries, and half of them are not diagnosed. China and India are number one and two now for type 2 diabetes, where a generation ago there wasn't any. So we're in a serious, a serious situation, and we have to, we have to address it. Now, in your program that you created with Sounds True, the Detox Box, which is a self-guided approach to detoxifying, you made a really interesting statement that I'd love for you to comment on. You write that contemplative exercises can have every bit as much impact on your body's ability to detoxify as the finest supplement or the most rigorous exercise program. And I'm curious if you can explain that. Absolutely. You know, thoughts are things, right? Thoughts are real. Thoughts are are substances that, that affect you, and uh, they have weight, and they can be harmful. Uh, we're learning some extraordinary things about thoughts and what they do and our way of framing the world and thinking about ourselves in the world. And, and uh, in the world of epigenetics, which is maybe a little technical, but the idea here is that, that you know, you have a set of genes which you got from your parents. You have, you know, 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 genes. You can't change that, but... You can change that's your book of life, but you can change where the bookmarks are and which chapters are read and which pages are read in your book of life. And these are things we call epigenetic tags. And you tag your genes to turn on or off different genes that create the expression of who you are in this moment. Your thoughts modify your gene expression. Your thoughts and your feelings control which genes get turned on and off and how that regulates health or disease. So learning how to work with that and transform that both on an on emotional level, on an intellectual level, on a, on a level that, that allows you to work on an energetic level, these can all be extraordinary transformational experiences, and, and they're a key part of detoxifying. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, just to end, I'd love if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your own process of becoming, quote-unquote, congruent, if you will, with all the things you know. I mean, how has that gone for you? Is it hard? Have there been any, like, oh, my God, I know this, but I just can't do it? Or, you know, I've got everything's kind of lining up with all this information that I know and how I actually live my life. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, like most people, I was pretty stubborn and didn't make any changes until I had to. I always say people don't change because they have NEP syndrome, which means not enough pain. So... I didn't really change until I had enough pain. And I had some basic tools because I was a yoga teacher before I was a doctor and I was a vegetarian for many years and I always exercised. But I really ran myself into the ground and I worked as a, an emergency room doctor and I just, just really killed myself and got very, very ill. And I, had to, and I was you know, fueling myself on coffee. I'd have a quadruple espresso, half a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and a giant chocolate chip cookie. And I would go to work at 11 o'clock at night and work all night. And it would last me about five in the morning. Hopefully I could take a nap for an hour and then I'd get back and finish my shift. And, and, um, that was how I managed. And then I would step the whole day and I wouldn't sleep. And I just didn't listen to my body. I didn't listen to the basic rhythms of life and thought, you know, that MD stood for medical deity and mean I didn't have to follow the same rules of biology as everybody else. So I was sort of forced to, because I developed chronic fatigue syndrome, and I had to completely reset my whole life. I had to pull back from everything. I had to, my whole body broke down, so I had to change my diet. I had to just reset my whole system. So, and as I've come out of that, I realized that I, I healed myself through that process, but I've had to 
live in a way that supports myself. And sometimes I do better, sometimes I do worse. Sometimes I, you know, I'm tired, I'm run down, I'll just go have something that's really junk or garbagey. Um, and some, you know, sometimes I'll go have a giant latte and a chocolate chip cookie. And sometimes um, I'll do that because I just feel like crap and I want to get a little energy boost and I have a long day ahead of me and, you know, I just have to deal with it like everybody else. But but on a day-to-day basis, I try to structure my life so that I can have things around me that support me, and and they become more second nature. So, and I don't. And I also create my house as a safe zone, and my workplace as a safe zone. So, it's very tough for me to make the wrong choices. I make it really hard because you know <laughs> before this call on this show, I I I was hungry, so I I actually was out very late last night, and I usually don't do that. But I was at a really fun event in New York, and. And I and I knew I had to do this show, and I was getting a little hungry, so I went downstairs. And the worst thing I could find to eat was some macadamia butter, and and macadamia butter, and some eighty percent dark chocolate, which I dipped in the. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was my decadence, and it was delicious. And, it, and since I'm not used to eating a lot of that stuff, it actually was super sweet and super delicious. So I think you you've been you, on a chocolate high this whole call. Mark. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, I didn't have that much. I had like a little square, and I just dipped it in there, and, um, and it was really good. And I, I think, um, you know, people go, God, probably that's gross. I wouldn't I want that. I want my cookie. But And sometimes I'll go for that. But if you just create the defaults in your environment, my house just, I can't find anything. If I'm going hunting and gathering, I'm only going to find stuff that's going to support me and not stuff that's going to harm me. And the more you can build that into your life, the better it is. And I try to schedule in yoga and exercise, um, meditation, it's not always easy, but it, you know I know that it it, it helps me, and um, and that I want to be able to enjoy life, and I'm I'm at heart a hedonist, and want to want to really feel good and enjoy the things that that are available to enjoy in life, and and I can't do that if I feel like crap. <laughs> Mark Hyman, the healthy hedonist. I like it. That would be me. Thank you so much for this conversation, and thank you so much for all the good work you're doing. Thank you. Dr. Mark Hyman has created with Sounds True a program called The Detox Box, a safe, medically informed detoxification program to boost your health and your immune system. He's also recorded with Sounds True an audio program called Ultra Calm, a six-step plan to reduce stress and eliminate anxiety. Thanks so much for being so real and so helpful. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.